If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Romans chapter 2. We'll be looking at that this morning. Um, Kind of overlapping with where we left off last week at verse 11 and going through to verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, we've got it in the bulletin for you, so... Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like, how would you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat, I was there first. Leave them alone He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you be first in line? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. And what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior that he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, forget your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he's been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there's some special excuse. He pretends there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange or that something has turned up which lets him off from keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man or the other woman is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he or she had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a football player had committed a penalty unless there were some agreement about the rules of football. So writes C.S. Lewis in the opening chapter of his brilliant work, Mere Christianity, as he uses day-to-day realities, common statements, and perspectives that we can all recognize and identify with to reveal the truth that there seems to be, within the human race, a universal recognition of standards of right and wrong that appears to be built into and, in fact, is part of the very fabric of our being. And the truth is, these things really are intrinsically part of who we are as people. 
who are made in and who still maintain and display, although imperfectly, terribly imperfectly, the image of God. And that truth, that reality, is behind some of the things being addressed by the passage before us this morning. And so we're going to spend a little time looking at and talking about those kinds of things. Before we go any further, however, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I ask for your help for myself as I attempt to explain this very small portion of your word. And my explanation will undoubtedly be full of mistakes. And for this congregation, I ask for your help, Father, as they attempt to understand and navigate between what you said, which is absolutely true, and my descriptions, which is full of human error. But help us to navigate through that and arrive at a right understanding. Help this congregation to apply this very same portion of your word to their minds and hearts. Father, give us all the humility we will need to fully benefit from the potential blessing that is there every time we take this opportunity to meet you in your word. Help us to hear the things we have missed in our previous readings of this passage. Help us to hear things that we didn't miss, but in our sinfulness actually heard, but then immediately suppressed in previous readings of this passage. And if this is the very first time we're encountering you in this particular portion of your word, then would you be so kind as to make it a gracious and impactful introduction? And would you please do all these things and whatever else you deem to be necessary for your sake and your honor and your pleasure. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. So we're continuing this morning with this study of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up with verse 12 of chapter 2 working through to verse 16 of that same chapter, with verse 11 as kind of a lead-in. We began this series about four months ago now. We started out by taking two weeks to work through the introduction, which is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, and then we spent three weeks looking at the opening thesis statement, which is 1, verses 16 and 17. And in our extended look at that thesis statement, we saw... How Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel, that is, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what it all means. And the reason Paul is not ashamed of that gospel is because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And further, one of the main reasons Paul is not ashamed but is actually ecstatic about the gospel is because in it and through it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then when we looked at that phrase, the righteousness of God, we saw that what Paul meant, uh, what Paul was referring to by means of that phrase was the right standing that was brought about between a holy God and undeserving, unrighteous persons by no merit of their own, but entirely by the gift and kindness and mercy of God. As they were credited with a righteousness, with a right standing, a right relationship that they never uh, could never, because of their sin brokenness, have affected on their own. And then ever since then, uh, that section, we've uh, finished looking at that thesis statement, we've been immersed 
ever since then in this sort of first main section of the letter, a section that runs from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to through chapter 3, verse 20. And so for the last seven messages, we've been looking carefully at this section and how Paul here is making a case for why the gospel message is so important and why the righteousness of God that is at the heart of the gospel message is so desperately needed. Namely, because all humanity... Every person that has ever lived or ever will live has a heart that is deeply entrenched in its rebellion against its creator and which manifests itself in a universal and an ongoing effort to suppress the truth about God and to engage in behaviors and patterns of behavior that clearly illustrate that rebellion. Now, in pointing out the universal unrighteousness and spiritual poverty of humanity, Paul started out by addressing humanity in general. And then in recent weeks, we've seen how after that, he's kind of turned his focus to a subset of people, um, that is, to those with Jewish backgrounds, including those who were professing believers who might have been tempted to consider themselves to be a special case with regard to the wrath and judgment of God against sin, as if they were somehow exempt from the sweeping indictment of humanity that Paul has made in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And so because this particular subset of people were regarding themselves as being exempt from Paul's indictments, and thus from any concerns about the judgment of God, they were also, as a result, in great danger of failing to understand and grasp their very great need for this righteousness that we've been talking about and which only God could provide. But Paul doesn't want them to miss out. Paul doesn't want his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to be left behind, and so he calls them out here in the verses and in the verses that follow. And further, it should be said that in focusing on this particular subgroup of people in Rome and the Roman church, Paul was simply showing his awareness, his personal awareness of uh, a characteristically Jewish practice and prejudice that he knew because he was a former Jew himself. And uh, that practice really of just looking down condescendingly upon non-Jews or Gentiles, and with that, the equally unhelpful practice of regarding oneself as being somehow morally superior or spiritually advantaged. That dangerous delusion and practice is what Paul has been working hard to deliver his Jewish brothers and sisters from. And in doing so, for example, Paul's already pointed out that his Jewish compatriots are no better off than the Gentiles that they hypocritically passed judgment upon, and in so doing were rendering themselves guilty of the very same things that they were criticizing in others. Paul wants his people to understand that the judgment of God will not be according to pedigree, but according to works, which levels the playing field between Jews and Gentiles before God, and which causes Paul to assert strongly that there is no partiality With God. This morning we pick up with verse 12. We're going to spend our time essentially expanding on Paul's declaration at the end there, verse 11, about the impartiality of God. Seeking to understand and establish that a little bit more and spend a little bit of time teasing out some of the implications of that. That's where we've been, that's where we are, 
That's where we're going. Let's listen now to the passage. Romans 2, starting at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so in the interest of being clear, let me run the risk of being repetitive by saying Paul is at this point in the letter trying to get the attention of his Jewish brothers and sisters and to make sure that they hear what he is saying about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And especially that they ought not imagine for a moment that their Hebrew heritage and the fact that their descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob gives them any kind of ultimate spiritual advantage or places them in some other category. And so he says, God shows no partiality. And he says it because that is precisely the truth that his brothers and sisters would struggle the most to accept and understand. And the reason why is summed up by a writer named Douglas Moo. And he says, the Jews regarded themselves as living within the sphere or the realm of the law. The Gentiles so most Jews maintained, could experience God's favor only by taking on the yoke of the law, by which they meant the moral law as contained in the Old Testament scriptures. In their minds, it was the case that outside of Israel, the sphere of the law, there is no salvation. By the same token, the Jews who lived within the domain of law often considered themselves virtually assured of salvation. So what's he saying? He's saying that the Jewish person in Paul's day would typically argue that there is partiality with God and that it's in their favor. And one of the clearest and most obvious evidences of that in their view and their thinking was the fact that they were the recipients of the law, of God's special revelation in the Old Testament scriptures. They'd received these things while everyone else, the Gentiles, had not. And so they reasoned, There is partiality with God. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll be addressing the undeniable fact that there really were some advantages for the Jewish people, as Paul will say himself soon enough. But before he gets there, he wants to make sure that he makes the important point that whatever other advantages the Jews may have had as God's chosen people, when it came to the ultimate matters of salvation and judgment and wrath of God, in this particular area, there were no advantages. They were in the same boat as everyone else. And so it is that Paul agrees, yes, the Jews were recipients of the law of God, but as he says in verse 13, having the law, receiving the law, hearing the law, those things in the end are not the most important thing. The most important thing with regard to the law, says Paul, is not hearing the law, but doing the law. That's the first thing Paul wants to say in response to his brothers and sisters' misplaced confidence. But there's more that needs to be said. Because the thoughtful reader of Paul's letter might be willing to concede that, yes, Paul is right. The more important thing is not hearing the law, but doing the law. Absolutely, 
But isn't it the case that there's still partiality with God there because are, are the Jews still not seen to be more favored in that situation? Since, again, they are the ones who've received the oracles of God while the Gentiles have not. And by the nature of things, the Gentiles did not grow up under the law, being taught it. So how could they even hope to become doers of the law if they didn't grow up that way? And Paul's response to, or I think perhaps anticipation of that kind of thinking is what pops up in verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the moral law, the Old Testament commandments, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's response to his assumed dialogue partner here is to say essentially that even though the Gentiles don't have the law in the sense of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, they do have a law mediated to them by another means. Whereas the Jews have the law externally, the Gentiles had the law internally as it was written on their hearts. In short, it's part of the equipment, which is what that opening illustration by C.S. Lewis was all about. Here's one writer, uh, how he talks about this. He says, how are we to explain this paradoxical phenomenon that although they do not have the law, yet they appear to know it? Because although they do not have the law in their hands, they have its requirements in their hearts because God has written them there. Paul is not referring to regeneration but to creation, to the fact that the work of the law, its requirements, has been written on the hearts of all human beings by their maker. And so in response to his Jewish brothers and sisters' assumptions that the judgment of God was partial and even slanted in their favor, and in response to their assumptions that they're having received the moral law, prove their position on this. In response to all that, Paul makes it clear that while they may have received the law, that did not mean that they were the only ones who had received or understood God's righteous requirements. Paul's clear statement here is that this knowledge is built in. It's part of the equipment. Just as he already made it clear that all people are without excuse regarding the existence of God, because creation has revealed it, he is now asserting that people are also without excuse in this area. Standards of right and wrong, and that they fall short of these standards. The fact that they have a functioning conscience that accuses them on some occasions and excuses them on other occasions and will continue to do so right up to the day of judgment itself. But that fact points to the reality of this built-in moral consciousness that is there because God has put it there. And so, because whether you, so whether you have the law externally by means of special revelation or internally as a result of how God has created us, or both, however you have it, Paul's point is we all have the law. We all have an understanding of righteousness and unrighteousness. We all feel the weight at times of not living up to the standard of the law that the law presents. At whatever level we know it. 
And because God's judgment will be according to what we do with what we know and not who we are or what our pedigree is or whether we've been part of a special class of people, then it most certainly is an impartial judgment. Again, Stott is very helpful. He says the point he's making is that all who have sinned will also perish or will be judged irrespective of whether they are Jews or Gentiles. That is, whether they have the Mosaic law or not. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. They will not be judged by a standard they've not known. They will perish because of their sin, not because of their ignorance of the law. Similarly, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. They, will, they too will be judged by the standard that they have known. God will be absolutely even-handed in His judgment. The way people have sinned in knowledge or ignorance of the law will be the way that they'll be judged. The ground of judgment is their works. The rule of judgment is their knowledge and whether they have lived up to that knowledge. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Now, in case you were not here last week, let me say at this point, the fact that the judgment of God will be according to works, as the text clearly says, is not at all the same thing as saying that we are justified by our works. Our working, our working is not the ground or the reason for our being right with God. That is always and only based upon the work of Christ on our behalf. Nevertheless, our works, our life, and pattern of life, while not being the determinant of our salvation, is certainly and will be an indicator of it or the lack thereof. We talked about that last week. We'll hit it again pretty hard when we get to Romans 3.20. But let me give you the brief reminder today in case you were not here last week. And that's available by podcast if you want to listen to it. So what do we do with all of this? What are some of the implications of what we've seen? And just, just a few verses, just a couple of ideas here, but I think there's a lot of implications. Uh, we won't chase them all down, obviously, but I want to chase down a couple uh, with a few minutes that we have left. Firstly, there are implications here for the world mission of the church. The charge is sometimes made that God's judgment of the world and impending judgment of the world is not and cannot be fair since not all people have received the gospel. Many, many people have lived and died and many, many more will live and die without ever receiving or hearing the good news of Jesus Christ because even after 2,000 plus years we are struggling to fulfill the worldwide evangelistic commission that the church has been given. Many, many people are born, live, and die in countries where no gospel is ever allowed. And that is a terrible thing. And those are dark places. Nevertheless, whatever else you can say about that, you must also say this. No human being can plead ignorance. Paul's words here make it clear that, as one writer puts it, we have all sinned against a moral law we have known. Whether we have come to know it by special or general revelation, by grace or nature, outwardly or inwardly, we have known it. That is the point. So there are no innocent people. There are no innocent people. No one 
gets a hall pass because they haven't heard the gospel. Now, it's tragic that they haven't heard it. It ought to motivate us all the more to fulfill our mission, but at the end of the day, that fact doesn't give people an out. They're not innocent because of the whole connection with Adam, which we're going to explore when we get to chapter 5, but they're also not innocent because of what Paul is showing us here, and he's already shown us in chapter 1. Because God has not left himself without a witness out there in his creation. He's already said that all people without excuse. You can't say, I didn't know there was a God. He's not left himself without a witness. Out there and in here now is what he's saying. In the specific creation that is human nature and the human heart and mind, there is a law, there's a standard. All of us show by how we live that we're aware of this. We operate daily, frequently, according to this understanding. And all of us show by our functioning and our fluctuating conscience that none of us lives up to it. We all know that. And that ought to impel us into mission. Starting with our own neighbors. We ought to be drawn in, driven into mission, not because people are innocent and ignorant of God, but precisely because they aren't. They aren't ignorant of God or of His standards. The problem isn't that people don't know the truth, it's that they are suppressing the truth that they know. And now they're facing the wrath of God that is looming before them like this great tidal wave of impending destruction, and we are the ones with the message, the truth of the gospel, the evacuation plan, if you will, that if they'll embrace it, can deliver them from certain doom. That's one implication. Additionally, and as a follow-on to that, there are implications here for our personal evangelism, which, by the way, is your job and my job. All of us, everyone, we have the opportunity, we have the privilege, and we have the responsibility to show and tell the gospel, the good news about Jesus to others. And these verses make that responsibility a little bit easier, actually. A little bit less scary and intimidating. How so? Here's how. Because what these verses tell you and assure you of is that whoever you're talking to I don't care if they're the smartest, most educated person on the planet or if they are uneducated and and illiterate or anywhere in between. But whoever you're talking to, here's one thing you can always know about them and about their situation. You are talking to a person who has the knowledge of the law, of right and wrong, of standards, however they've come to it, externally or internally or both, and that knowledge is written on their hearts. It's part of the DNA, so to speak, of who they are as human beings. Right? The person standing before you is always someone who has inner urges to do what he or she believes is right, and with that, they have inner and very real guilt and remorse at times over the fact that sometimes, maybe even often, they do what they know to be wrong or they fail to do what they know they ought to have done 
In other words, as Stott puts it, their conscience is your ally. Their conscience is on your side of the argument before the argument has even begun. So use that for inspiration and advantage. As Stott says, in all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself, the other person's conscience is on my side. Third implication, I'll close with this, is in the area of social justice and thinking about how we minister to and serve others in our community. One writer puts it this way. I think this is brilliant because I didn't write it, so there you go. So pay attention. You need to pay attention to this. He says, the same moral law which God has revealed in Scripture, he's also stamped on human nature. Since he has, in fact, then written his law twice, internally as well as externally, it's not to be regarded as an alien system which we impose on people arbitrarily and which it altogether is altogether unnatural to expect human beings to obey. On the contrary, there is a fundamental correspondence between the law and Scripture and the law and human nature. God's law fits us. It's the law of our own being. We are authentically human only when we obey it. In every human community, therefore, there is a basic recognition of the difference between right and wrong and even an accepted set of values. And this has an important social and political implications. It means that legislators and educators can assume that God's law is good for society and that at least to some degree people know it. It is not the case of Christians trying to force their standards on an unwilling public, but of helping the public to see that God's law is for our own good at all times because it is the law of human being and human community. Now, all kinds of stuff can explode out of that. But at its core, what it means is that we, as we're responding in faithfulness and obedience to what God has done within us and what He's called us to, when we respond and are pursuing love demonstrated as we serve others and reach out to them in mercy and mission, we do so from an explicitly biblical worldview that corresponds precisely with how people really are. All of their truth suppression notwithstanding. What you are doing and saying corresponds with how they are made. No matter how much they deny it. When we do that, when we minister to them and we call them explicitly and unashamedly to embrace biblical truth and biblical standards, we are not and we are never imposing upon them something that is foreign or artificial or that we allegedly have no right to do. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now certainly it always matters how we do things, and we don't have time to develop that here. But that being said, when we respond out of our biblical worldview and we call and invite and encourage others unashamedly to embrace and live according to that same worldview, and when we seek to set up structures, even social structures, that reflect biblical truth, there is no imposition going on. There's nothing artificial or foreign happening. We are simply calling people to live in a way that is congruent 
with the script that is already there in their own nature. We're calling them home. The alien thing would be to shut up and never say it. We are calling them to recognize and embrace and admit and submit and serve the one who gives a name and a face to that reality that they have felt and yet suppressed for so long. That voice has a name, and that name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's very tempting and very easy for us to believe so many other things more quickly than we will believe you and the things that you have plainly stated in your word. So, Father, please give us the faith to do that and to then live as if we actually believed these things that you have told us. Through that, Father, draw us to yourself to see your beauty, your goodness, your grace, and how worthy it is to pursue you and to want to be like you. Please draw us in. Please draw us forward. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up the offering right now for those who want to support the work in and through this church.